Welcome to the Before We Go podcast featuring Dr. David Maines and his wife, noted author, Karen Maines. Our subject for today, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Here's David and Karen Maines. Uh, you're looking good, Karen. Well, thank you. I don't know if you noticed that I cleaned up for this you are. visit. <laughs> Dressed and ready to go for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're comfortable, friend. Our podcast is called... Before we go. And we are David and Karen Maines. Karen, I'm going to bring up a topic. I want your initial response when you hear it. So you don't know what I'm going to say. So don't think about it a long time and then come with your answer. I want you to just immediately respond, okay? Okay. Judgment Day. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what I feel. I feel, you know, a weight, kind of a dread and... um, which I think is appropriate. Yes, people aren't joking around. Not, no, the scripture day. is not joking around, and it, mm-hmm. it, it mentions it frequently enough that it's not a byword. It seems to be a, an event where we will mm-hmm. be forced to look at the meaning of our lives and how we've spent it mm-hmm. before our Almighty. Uh, judgment Day is not in my mind a lot. Is it in your mind? No. I kind of pulled it out of nowhere for you, huh? Yeah, I... Um, uh, but partly because I think we live in a system where we confess our sins and, and regularly examine how we're failing and um, don't feel like they're that we're offending any of those major, you know, thou shalt nots in the Decalogue. When do you confess your sins? Um, generally in church during a time of when we're asked to examine ourselves. During the time of communion. That, or during the time or before mm-hmm. communion or Eucharist, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, I have another one I'm going to give you. Okay. okay. Uh, Did I pass that last one? <laughs> I'm not grading. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here we go. Go ahead. Ready? Uh-huh. Okay, clear your mind. Okay. Antichrist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think about that more. Just because when you look at the world, the condition of the world globally, uh, it feels like we're hastening towards something awful. And, of course, the scripture that talks about the Antichrist puts the Antichrist in a time where there's major deconstruction of everything that we've known that mm-hmm. has been good and beautiful and holy. Yeah, I, this series on Revelation, I've been saying that the world is heading toward this ultimate conflict between the forces of good and evil. Right. I don't think there's any question about that. And there will rise this figure of the Antichrist, everything that Christ stood for. The Antichrist will oppose that. He mm-hmm. will be the man of evil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you, you see it beginning to unfold in ways that are unusual. Well, and with the Internet, a world domination is much more feasible than um, it was in generations before. So, yeah, I do think about it. In the message that I will give, which is the 11th of 12 in the series on Revelation I bring up these topics and ask people to discuss them as families because I think it's important that mm-hmm. we have opportunity to do this. Do you think when it uh, when we bring up things like Judgment Day or the Antichrist or the Millennium, mm-hmm. uh, do you think you have a balanced attitude on this? I think I do, but uh, that's you know I'm 76, so you work out your theology or work out your sa- salvation, as Paul mm-hmm. recommends that we do um, over the decades. And um, you have, I think you develop an instinct to what's uh, shoddy theology or manipulative 
theology. And so I believe that at this stage in my life, I do have a balanced viewpoint about that. Um, but I, I suppose as, as every generation gets older and hits your, you know, when we, as we become opt- octogenarians, we have a, a long past to compare things to. And I think this is a treacherous age more than any that we have known. And there have been many times when our parents in their, t- in their time of life would have said this is a treacherous age. And they were. It was a time when it was the Second World War, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But this is different. This is a different time than anything I've known. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's balanced. Hopefully the series I have done on Revelation is balanced. I feel that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it is, but that's how I feel. I don't think I've done it in... A desire to scare people. I've just it's done not it. sensationalized. I've read your manuscript several times, whereas I think certain preachers and theo- theologians do try and manipulate that scripture so that people are afraid or they get their lives in good shape. Or you've been very um, uh, approachable in the way you've treated it. Um, but the reality is that that there are warnings in Revelation to the way we should live. Mm-hmm. So, the series will be over. This is number 11 of 12. We have one more to go. And I'm grateful that people have stuck with me during this series. (laughs) And I trust that it is helpful and balanced, as you're saying. Conflicts have consequences. That's true whether it's a fight between two people or two massive armies. Conflicts have consequences. In our study of Revelation, we last looked at the conflict between Christ and the Antichrist. There was obviously not going to be an amicable resolution to that universe-shaking hostility. So, in the ultimate face-off, Christ proved to be the victor. If we look at Revelation in terms of good versus evil, the good side wins. That scripture, Revelation 19, 11-21, about the rider on the white horse, is what I would call the climax to this book. The superiority of Christ is decisive, at least regarding the foreseeable future. Today's passage, Revelation chapter 20, is about the consequences, or the fallout of that one-sided victory. From last week, we already know that the Antichrist and the false prophet were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Also, the armies of the many kings who joined with this wicked duel were destroyed, and their bodies were left for the birds to gorge on their remains. If the outcome of that battle had been less conclusive, we wouldn't be reading the next verses. But here's today's assigned text, Revelation chapter 20. Listen to verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that... He must be set free for a short time. Back in Revelation chapter 9, when the fifth trumpeting angel sounded his instrument, the abyss was opened and a great swarm of stinging locust-like creatures came flying out. Remember that? 
Then in Revelation chapter 11, about the two prophet-type witnesses in Jerusalem, you recall how the beast came up from the abyss and killed them? So I picture the abyss, where Satan will be held captive, as kind of the dark underworld. The Bible implies that a long vertical shaft connects the dungeon-like parts to the upper earth as we know it. Is the abyss a literal place, or is it more symbolic? I would think it's probably the latter. What I came away with after reading this paragraph is that the devil is now, as a result of the battle loss in the previous chapter, much more restricted in his ability to function. Nothing is mentioned here about the many fallen angels who aligned themselves with him. The next paragraph introduces the subject of the millennium, or the thousand-year reign of Christ, and is followed by a paragraph about Satan's eventual release from his prison. Anyway, while serving time as an inmate, the devil will definitely be limited in what he can do. The thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth is referred to by scholars as the millennium. It's another consequence of Christ's victory. That's because a new era is now introduced. It's unlike the one in which we presently live. Would it help to let you in on a secret? Even theologians tend to be bamboozled by the millennium. It's from the Latin, mil, thousand, and honest, year. And would you believe this is the only place in the entire Bible where this exact teaching is found? This is further complicated by the fact that parts of Revelation are obviously symbolic. So what's to be taken literally and what's not? Now hear me. Everything we know about the millennium, biblically speaking, is in the next seven sentences. Everything. Sentence one, I saw thrones, that's plural, thrones, on which were seated those who were given authority to judge. So who are they? Back in Revelation 2.26, Jesus said in one of his seven short sermons, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He's talking to Christians, all Christians, including us. That promise was repeated in Revelation 5 in the praise song sung in heaven by the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders. It included these words, With your blood you purchased men for God and made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You may have recollections of Jesus promising his disciples, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's Matthew 19.28. In 1 Corinthians 6.2, Paul, in his appeal to the church to settle disputes internally rather than in ungodly courts, writes, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Saints, again, that's us. We are the saints who will judge the world. With many believers who will be in new and untested roles as leaders or sitting on thrones, 
It's kind of comforting to know about Satan's greatly restricted role, given his reputation for being skilled at not only messing things up, but his penchant for going after leaders. And remember, there will still be many living on the earth who earlier had pledged allegiance to the beast. Back to our text. Here are sentences 2, 3, and 4 of this seven-sentence paragraph. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Some weekend, if you're looking for a movie to rent, check out Taking Chance, starring Kevin Bacon. Chance is the first name of a young soldier who was killed in Iraq in 2004. In this HBO production based on a true story, Bacon plays an American colonel, Mike Strobel, who fought earlier in Desert Storm. Now he volunteers to escort the body as it's returned to its hometown for burial. So the name of the film, Taking Chance, refers to the trip of this senior officer accompanying Chance's body back to his former place of residence. I won't attempt to tell the story, but from the beginning of the movie you get the clear impression that bodies like this are treated with utmost respect. Arriving in Germany from Iraq, it's put into a flag-draped metal box and flown to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. There it is gently washed and clothed in a spotless new uniform. In Chance's case, his wounds were so severe that a closed casket was recommended. However, this doesn't mean his body wasn't properly cared for. All escorting personnel are given precise instructions regarding traveling with a body of a fallen Marine and the need to render proper honors at all times. This includes ensuring the remains always travel feet first and, of course, right side up. The casket is enclosed in a large shipping container and at each exchange, car to airport, plane to plane, airport to funeral home, the escort person is to be there watching, checking that everything is proper, coming to attention and saluting when the body is moved. When the casket is removed from the shipping box and subsequently draped in an American flag, it's all done in great seriousness and exactly by regulations. After it finally arrives at the funeral home and prior to the actual service, care is displayed in removing the flag from the top of the casket so the remains can once again be checked. It's then that personal items from the family are placed in the casket. The body is examined one last time by the escort to make sure everything looks exactly as it should, even though it will be a closed casket service. The folks back at Dover did a great job, says Strobel. Uniforms, perfect. When meeting with the parents, they are given dog tags and other items found on Chance's body. Strobel also delivers to them a letter from their son's platoon commander. 
I want you to know, Strobel tells the family, that all along the way Chance was treated with dignity, respect, and honor. They know this is true. The actual funeral service is quite moving. The casket is then placed on a horse-drawn wagon. As it moves through the town, people line the streets to pay their respects. Boy Scouts hold American flags at various spots along the route. At the cemetery, the guns of an honor guard fire a salute. The parents are also presented with an American flag sent to them from the President of the United States. All told, just eight days have elapsed between when Chance was killed in Iraq and when he is buried in his parents' hometown in Riverton, Wyoming. Watching how the Marines treat their dead makes you proud of how everything is handled. Back in Revelation chapter 14, I was struck by these words. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. I can't imagine that these special individuals in Christ's ranks who give their lives in loyalty to him, will be treated with any less dignity, respect, and honor than what this movie depicts. Martyrdom is certainly not something a believer desires, but neither is it seen in Revelation as the worst of all possible fates. I would advise that you not only learn to become comfortable with the idea, but that you begin to see it as a high honor. When the truth is fully known, I'm sure we will deeply be moved by the love and concern our Lord shows his martyrs. In fact, this passage makes us aware that God has this wonderful surprise in store for all of them. I mean... The Marines can't bring their heroes back to life. So, you ask, is Jesus going to personally and bodily reign here on earth with his saints, including the many martyrs? I believe that to be so. Will it be for a thousand years? The time, ten times ten times ten, sounds symbolic, but who really knows? Let's just say that it will be long enough for Christ Jesus to see to it that this earth functions much more the way he intended as creator. Picture with me, for a moment, what this world would be like if Jesus was recognized and honored by most people as the individual now in charge of everything. I know that in reality Jesus is already sovereign over all of creation, but at present that truth is hardly recognized or honored by all that many earthlings. But what if it were? What if our risen Lord established a world government that he would head for a thousand years? 
and what if one of his first acts was to confine Satan to a place where neither he nor his wicked legions could influence human beings? In what ways would our earth be different? My initial thought is that for the first time in many years, the people of this battered globe would experience both peace and the security that accompanies it. Instruments of war would be forever done away with. That means no more grenades, no more machine guns, cluster bombs, landmines, tanks, battleships, jet fighters, nuclear weapons. Just think of it. Jesus would be the ultimate authority, and he would exercise absolute power in every situation. Closely related to this would be prosperity for all to enjoy. Eliminate nation's military budgets, and the savings would be huge. With the leftover resources in the hands of a benevolent leader, before long, even the evasive problem of world poverty would begin to vanish. How incredible would that be? With the majority of people buying into the inspired concept of loving your neighbor, it wouldn't take long for greater and greater numbers to begin sharing in this world's incredible wealth. My heart tells me that health and happiness they'd be delighted in as never before. While I'm at it, let me quickly add another H. Holiness. I don't assume that sin would be totally eliminated, but it would certainly take a huge hit. Would it be helpful for me to now explain in detail the various schools of interpretation regarding the millennium? Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial? <laughs> I didn't think so. All three have qualified theologians whose work for those interested deserves critical study. In an admittedly inadequate manner, let me just say that the premillennial school holds to the position that the return of Christ has to happen before the millennium. So then Christ's return in power is premillennial. Postmillennialists say that Christ will return after God's people issue in the kingdom the way they were intended to do all along. Then Jesus returns. So they are post-millennial. Amillennialists say that there really is no future thousand-year reign. They spiritualize this passage and link it with the victory of Christ over Satan during his first coming. Do I admit with my brief summary that I really haven't been fair to the quality scholarship that marks these various schools of thought? I'm lifting my right hand like I'm taking an oath. Yes, I admit with my brief summary that I really haven't been fair to the quality scholarship that marks these various schools of thought. Confession is always good for the soul. Before quickly revealing my own position... Let me go back and read the final three sentences in this paragraph about the thousand-year reign of our Lord. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. 
the rest of the dead. I take that to mean the non-Christians. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. The second death is explained later in this chapter in verse 14. It reads, The lake of fire is the second death. So again, the second death, the lake of fire, has no power over those who have part in the first resurrection. Now continuing, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Personally, I believe the return of Christ precedes the millennial reign of our Lord, so I am pre-millennial. Probably more importantly, I really don't want to miss out on such an extraordinary experience. Reigning with Christ for a thousand years sounds phenomenal. And I am selfishly reluctant to let go of passages like Isaiah 11. Here are some of those marvelous words from God's prolific Old Testament prophet. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Sounds really good, don't you think? The peaceable kingdom. And it's an answer to the prayer prayed by millions down through the ages. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the devil made his move. And in his heyday, he saw to it that things were really difficult for God's people, but he lost and while he languishes in a prison of his own making, we get to enjoy the remarkable experience of living during the peaceable reign of God's Son and his people. Have sin and evil been totally eliminated? Unfortunately not. Next paragraph. Number three of four paragraphs here in Revelation 20. It comes with additional conundrums. Verse 7 starts, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. Ah, why, God? You know you can't trust him. No good will come of this. There will be consequences. Bad decision. Very bad. But no rationale is given in this passage. I've read the thoughts of some wise spiritual writers, and they could be correct. For example, the late professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary, George Eldon Ladd, wrote this in his commentary on the Revelation of John. While God does not need to vindicate his righteousness, the Apostle Paul is concerned to make it crystal clear that God has so dealt with men that those who suppress the truth are without excuse. 
In the present instance, even after Christ himself has reigned over men during the millennium, when the deceiver is set free from his prison, he finds the hearts of men still responsive to his seductions. This makes it plain that the ultimate root of sin is not poverty or inadequate social conditions or an unfortunate environment. It is the rebelliousness of the human heart. Scripture doesn't give an explanation as to why God allows Satan to be released from prison. So I'll just attribute what's happening to reasons God alone understands and hasn't chosen, at least in this instance, to explain. Having been released, Satan, verse 8, will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle in number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever." Now we come to paragraph 4 of Revelation chapter 20. Let's review. Paragraph 1, Satan's imprisoned. Paragraph 2, the first resurrection, during which time Christians act as judges along with Jesus in his thousand-year reign. Paragraph 3, Satan is released one final time, but his rebellion is crushed. Now paragraph 4, Judgment Day. There are various judgments talked about in Scripture. I don't want to get into those details. This one, the great white throne judgment, relates primarily to non-believers. Here are verses 11 through 13. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, the death in Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Suffice it to say that the final judgment is a most sobering scene. Current headliner names don't mean a whole lot now. People aren't joking around while waiting. It is a most terrifying time because the eternal destiny of those being judged is determined. You see, the world doesn't end with unfinished business. God makes sure that justice prevails and that everyone receives his or her proper dues. Then, Scripture, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is 
presentation 11 of 12, based on the book of Revelation. Next visit will be the conclusion to the series. In preparation for that time, I encourage you to read chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. I also have another assignment for you, but first let's do another quick review. The consequences of Christ's decisive victory in Revelation 19:11 through 21, where the rider on the white horse returns in power, include these rapid changes. 1. The Antichrist and the false prophet are killed. 2. Satan is imprisoned and his influence is greatly diminished. 3. The thousand-year reign of Jesus begins here on earth, which is still populated by vast numbers of people, including many who bowed before the beast image and bore his mark. 4. Christians who died through the ages come alive again in the first resurrection. And 5. They now reign with their Lord in various positions of leadership. Only then do events start to slow down, and during the days and weeks and months, and years, and decades, and centuries that follow, the earth and its inhabitants see some amazing positive changes, including finally world peace. Then after a thousand years, Satan is released from prison, and we are quickly back to war once again. However, the devil and his forces are soundly defeated, and that sets up Judgment Day. And that's the sequence of this 20th chapter of Revelation. Now, how is this narrative to be understood? As literal? As symbolic? As religious folklore? as nonsense. Personally, I believe we are to understand that there will be a literal Antichrist figure and also a false prophet. I would say we need to take Satan seriously. I certainly believe in the resurrection of the dead. I also believe in the millennium, like the hymn I've sung so many times states, Jesus shall reign where the sun doth its successive journeys run, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. I also affirm that there will be a day of judgment, and so on. So I don't just quickly dismiss paragraphs like these in Revelation 20 that follow the verses about the victorious return of Christ, which, incidentally, I also believe in, the victorious return of Christ, to me, these passages are not totally incomprehensible or mystical or mere symbolism. There is much here that needs to be taken most seriously and not only affirmed but embraced as wonderful. Here's what I'm saying. Christians would be wise to take seriously biblical topics like the Antichrist, Satan, the Millennium, Judgment Day. Let me list those four again, and as I do, I challenge you to pick just one to think seriously about this coming week. One, the Antichrist and the False Prophet. Two, 
Satan and his eventual doom. 3. The thousand-year reign of Christ. 4. An eventual day of judgment. As I go through the list again, just pick one. And this week, come to a decision as to whether the one you chose is to be a part of your belief system or not. I'm just asking that you mull this over in your mind today, tomorrow, and during the week ahead. Here again are your options. 1. The Antichrist and the False Prophet. 2. The Devil and His Doom. 3. Jesus reigning here for a thousand years. 4. Judgment Day. Are you conflicted? In a state of kind of emotional conflict? Conflicts have consequences. Which of these biblical topics would you like to process these next seven days to either disregard or to bring more to the top of your belief system? One more time, you pick one the Antichrist and the false prophet? Satan? The Millennium? The Last Judgment? Did you pick one? You either believe in the Last Judgment or you don't. You believe in Satan or you don't, and so on. I can wait a bit longer. This week, you're to decide whether you want to forget about, toss out of your mind as irrelevant to your belief system, this biblical topic. I mean, that's an option. Lots of people today see the Antichrist, the devil, the millennium, the judgment as religious nonsense, not worth a second thought. Is that where you are also? Or will you this week give your choice a second thought and a third and a fourth and so on? That's all I'm asking. Did you choose one? Here's that key sentence one more time. Christians would be wise to take seriously biblical topics like the Antichrist and the false prophet, Satan, The Millennium, Judgment Day. You've been listening to the Before We Go podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and share on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you listen. This podcast is copyright 2019 by Mainstay Ministries, Post Office Box 30, Wheaton, Illinois, 60189.